You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. It did bring to life how key universities and the research we do can be to people's lives and the impact on society and to really, you know, how how important and vital it is. We designed the project in a, in a few different ways, but things kept turning up in a Dickensy way during the project, and we had to kind of adapt to them. Hello, and welcome to the Times Higher Education Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Custer, the editor of Campus. And I'm Eliza Compton, the acting deputy editor of Campus. This is a celebratory episode where we are speaking with past winners of the THE Awards in the run-up to the 2023 THE Awards on December 7th in Liverpool. We thought it would be a great opportunity to speak to past winners from 2022 to hear what they're up to, hear how their projects are going, and learn a little bit more about what made them the big winners of the night last year. So Eliza, you spoke with two awards winners. Tell us who tell us who we're going to hear from first. I did. Our first interview is with Tanya Wood, who is the Deputy Director of Communications at King's College London. Now, King's College and Zoe, which is a health science company, won the award for Outstanding Marketing and Communications Team last year for their COVID Symptom Study app. Hi, Tanya. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Campus Podcast, which is focusing on the winners from last year's THE Awards. We've um, got you here because King's College London and Zoe won the Outstanding Marketing Communications Team category for the COVID Symptom app. So I'd like to welcome you to the podcast and also um, immediately launch into perhaps a description of the study and the app for those listeners who may not be familiar with it. Yeah, thank you very much. So um, yes, the app was launched in March 2020. As we know, the world faced a a totally novel virus, COVID-19. And from the early reports, it was clear there was a wide range of symptoms which were differing from person to person. And the app was built by a team of developers from the health science startup Zoe over one sleepless weekend. So over four days, they built this app. And its aim was to provide scientists at King's College London, where I work, with real-time data to enable them to track symptoms and ultimately slow the spread of the virus. And how I became involved was we needed to quickly launch a joint PR campaign between King's College London and Zoe to rapidly attract the media and the public to the project. So you were involved right from the beginning, so from March 2020? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we heard from our, you know, scientists who were involved, um, notably, you know, Professor Tim Spector, that this app was going to launch and we needed to help sort of launch it and get as many people signed up to it and starting to log their symptoms as soon as possible. Because without that data, our scientists at King's couldn't look into, you know, symptoms and signs that were starting to emerge. So, yeah, really important that that PR campaign kicked off as soon as possible. 
the challenges was absolutely, you know, there was no available budget and a, a very small team. So, so we needed to ensure that we had, you know, very clear press strategy, engaging social media and a very strong partnership between King's College London and Zoe to, to use our available channels as effectively as possible. Mm, and you were incredibly effective. I mean, you had, what, 2 million people sign up in the first two weeks, I think, which is quite extraordinary. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about um, impact. So it feels like there's a bit of a chain of impact. So you started the app very quickly. You needed to make people aware of it and then trust it enough to use it um, and then sign on and then you are then able to translate that data into government policy. Can you talk about that and maybe your ambitions for the app when you started the campaign? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we knew from the start, you know, between us and Zoe that we were we weren't dealing or operating in normal times. Um, and this was, you know, an unprecedented times, which has been used a lot, that word. But it, it was and it was the same for our communications. We were we weren't communicating in, in normal times. Absolutely. We had journalists attention ready to go. But this was a chance to do something a bit differently and challenge the norm. And, you know, you touched on it before, the, the public's engagement with this app was going to be critical and how to keep the public engaged and, and constantly logging on their symptoms and encourage new users to join throughout the journey. And part of our comm strategy was to, to flex to that. And as the research was coming out, we knew we needed to get it out to the public as soon as possible. Now, historically, as we know, research papers, you know, can take months to, to get peer reviewed and to get out there. But because of the, the landscape we were operating in, we actually decided this time to um, release, you know, pre-print scientific papers um, before peer review with all the appropriate caveats built in. But we felt that was really important here because we needed to ensure that the public knew in real time what was coming through from the research. So absolutely working in that way and then including, you know, um, digital communications. So weekly YouTube videos with Professor Tim Spector, weekly data press releases to all our national media outlets and really working very closely with journalists on you know, exclusives with places like the BBC to ensure that the national picture was also reaching lots of, lots of our local um, regions as well. Mm -mm. You um, or the, the symptom tracker identified the loss of taste and smell quite early on in the piece, I believe. How did you go about bringing anosmia to the um, attention of the, the policymakers in government? Really, that was by our tactic of 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 pre you know of press releasing pre print scientific papers and not waiting for that peer review. It meant that we could start to get that message out there um, as early as possible. So really, utilizing the press, utilizing our relationships with journalists to really start to seed in that this was a key symptom that was coming through, and it actually meant that you know 
through through our media work that actually the BBC ended up referring to that research in a Downing Street press conference. And then ultimately the government, you know, it was brought to the government's attention through through the media and, and lobbying by our scientists. And then it was added on to the official list of COVID-19 symptoms in May 2020. So that was, you know, a couple of months after we'd started to press release these findings. Yeah, that's incredibly, incredibly quick. How much of your strategy was informed by this two-way nature of um, of collecting the information and then communicating the science in in real time? You've mentioned the use of of preprint and social media, but was there built into your strategy a sense of of flexibility, perhaps, and agility around how you were going to communicate this information as it came in? Yeah, absolutely. We we had to remain very flexible um, and, and on call um, to our scientists. You know, we have very close relationships with our scientists at King's College London and were able to really understand, you know, on a on a week by week basis what what was coming through. There were calls with the Zoe team on a weekly basis and calls with the Department of Health um, communications as well to really understand w- what is coming through and how can we get this message out there and how can we properly start to show the public um, through through the media and our communications what is coming through and what people really need to look out for because you know th- this was potentially life changing for people and life saving information and research that we really needed to get out there in a very timely manner and accurate manner as well. What was it like at HQ at the time in the middle of all this? Incredible. I mean, just actually such an honour to, you know, work on such an amazing, impactful project such as this. And it really, it did bring to life how key universities and the research we do can be to people's lives and the impact on society and to really you know how how important and vital it is it was yeah incredibly busy but just amazing to see you know the speed at which our scientists can work and 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 bring out results that can make really make a real difference to the world Mm. yes i do remember watching Zoe through the through the pandemic and being stuck at home and what looks back now we look back now and it seems to have moved incredibly quickly but in fact when you're at home waiting for day-to-day information time actually moves in a completely different way um so and was there a moment that stood out for you amongst amongst all this when you I don't know when you thought we are really in the middle of history here or there was something that had really worked. Um, is there a moment that stands out for you? I think I think it's got to be around that discovery of the lack of taste and smell because I think that was just a- amazing to see that sort of coming through the data from the app, translating into a research paper, starting to come out through the press and our work with journalists and then being brought up in a question, you know, directly to the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson to say, you know, this is coming through from research from King's, 
you know, and through the, the Zoe app. So I think just to see that and then to see that actually change policy and, and get added onto the official symptom list, I think just that sort of journey of, of really, you know, in, in, inputting data into an app, translating into a research science, coming through our communications and then really impacting directly on people's lives and policy was just a fantastic way to, to show how, how you can sort of make a difference. And I think just just seeing, you know, the coverage coming through and, and working with our journalists to really get that story out um, was was really good. And then a sort of second standout was probably through the lull and, and the second the second wave. Um, so discovery of long COVID, which again was something that through keeping users engaged through that lull, you know, even in in the in the lull period, users were still signing up to the app, still logging on their symptoms because our communications were keeping on going. You know, we, we didn't we didn't stop. And actually when that second wave started to take hold and long COVID started to come through again, our scientists were able to identify that really early and start to get those messages out there. Yeah, it's um, it really is a kind of incredible story of, of continuous uh, engagement. COVID is still with us. Um, there's about 1.2 million cases, symptomatic cases. I think predicted um, in the UK today. I had a quick look in the on the on the website. And long COVID, as you mentioned, is something that people are, are living with and very much aware of. So COVID is persisting. What are some of the takeaways that you have that you will take from your experience with building and communicating about the app into into future campaigns? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely looking at what what we do and challenging that all the time. As I said, you know, I think in communications and in other aspects of of what we do across a university, sometimes you can get in a bit of a lull of doing the same thing or or taking the same approach to campaigns but I think it's also always important to look at that and think actually is there a more creative way that we can approach this or is there a different way and actually what's the impact or outcome that we want to have and how to best achieve that and then I think also looking across channels and taking you know a wide variety of approaches to ensure that your campaign is cross-cutting so looking at your digital channels looking at more traditional media channels looking at places like youtube and social media i think as as many of our communications colleagues will will know you have to consider the whole package in order to make a real rounded campaign but i would say yeah number one takeaway is you know don't be afraid to challenge the norm and and look to do things differently to get cut through. Oh, that's um that is fantastic advice. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Tanya. It's been really fantastic um, speaking to you. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 
So I can't really listen to that conversation without thinking about the COVID inquiry, which is going on right now in the UK, looking into the government's response to how they handled the COVID crisis. And it seems to me that Zoe was a rare light of certainty in what was a very confusing time for the scientific leaders and the political leaders that were trying to figure out the country's strategy on how to respond. Um, I love the fact that it was uh, such a community project and that it gave real life data about people's symptoms of COVID. Oh, absolutely. It's really a story of public and policy engagement on quite a considerable scale. I mean, millions of people logged their symptoms on the app. And I really enjoyed talking to Tanya, getting her insight about what it was like being in the eye of the storm during the pandemic and thinking about how incredibly important that work was at the time and how important it continues to be because they're still tracking symptoms um, and they're still logging cases. Hmm. Yeah, and I know that it won outstanding marketing and communications team, and it is, as you say, the gold standard of, of public engagement and public outreach and policy influence. But I also like the fact that it um, Zoe is a health science company that was founded by Tim Spector, an epidemiologist at King's College. So it really goes to show how that entrepreneurship and that public-private partnership can um, really create great outcomes. Yeah, it was a really uh, fantastic example of thinking differently and using every possible avenue to communicate the science um, as well as gather the data in the first place. Mm-hmm. Who else did you speak to for this episode, Eliza? So my second interview is with Hugo Bowles who is an honorary professorial research fellow at the University of Buckingham. He and Claire Wood, who is a lecturer in Victorian literature at the University of Leicester, won the award for Research Project of the Year in the Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences for their project, The Dickens Code. Hugo, welcome to the THE Campus podcast. It's a real pleasure to talk to you this morning. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Well, today we're going to be talking about the Dickens Code project, uh, which was a recipient of a THE award last year, um, and a collaboration between yourself and Claire Wood, who is a professor of Victorian literature at the University of Leicester. The project, it feels, could almost be the plot of a novel itself. A letter on blue notepaper written in a strange hand lies undeciphered for 150 years until a call goes out across the world to help unravel its clues. Um, Could you tell us how this project came about? Yeah, it is a bit Dickensy in character. It started really quite a long time ago, about seven or eight years ago, when I was researching Dickens's shorthand. And it's not a very well-known part of Dickens's life, which was a surprise to me. I'm a linguist, so I'm not really a literary scholar, but so I was interested more in the linguistic side. And then I found, I was interested in Dickens's style and his, his style of language. And then I found that he'd learned shorthand. So I thought I'd go down the, the shorthand rabbit hole and see what was there. And it turned out to be very interesting. Um, very briefly, Dickens used a system of shorthand called the Gurney system, by devised by um, 
William Gurney of, in two, 300 years ago, and he used it all his life. And there are about 12, 10 or 12 items of his shorthand still surviving in libraries around the world. And before our project started, only some of these items of shorthand had been transcribed because the shorthand is really difficult. And I'd written a book about Dickens's learning of shorthand and how it influenced his life and his work. But I was kind of bothered, and I was really bothered by the fact that even though I knew a lot about it, I still couldn't transcribe it. Um, and that were, there were these untranscribed bits of Dickens shorthand uh, around the world. You know, this is unread Dickens. And uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to get them transcribed in some way. So I was wondering about how we could do this, because over the two, last 200 years, people have individually tried on their own, a bit like me, to staring at this shorthand and trying to work out uh, what it meant. And I just thought, well, maybe it needed a, just a lot more people to put their heads together and try and solve the problem. And I met Claire um, at a Dickens conference about five years ago. We were on the bus going to the social dinner and Claire just happened to be sitting beside me. So we got chatting and she asked me what I was doing. And she, Claire, is not just a Dickens scholar, but she's also an expert in public engagement. And so she thought, said, well, you know, this is a public, this is a perfect public engagement project. And that's what we need here. So we we wrote it together um, and got a small network building grant from the AHRC and kind of off we went. Mm. That's really how it started off. We designed the project in a, in a few different ways, but things kept turning up in a Dickensy way during the project, and we had to kind of adapt to them. So first of all, we set up a network uh, which we who we thought could help us. So they would be Dickens scholars, an expert in computer science, informatics, uh, a forensic linguist, and also we had people from the from the libraries, representatives of the libraries, which had items of the shorthand. So we had this group of pe people who we knew would help us. So the question was really how to get um, the heads together to solve the transcription problem. And we did this by, um, we set up an online public competition to decode mm -hmm. a one page shorthand letter. There was this rather beautiful letter and, and written in Dickens's very nice, tidy shorthand. So that was a kind of an iconic image that we could use. Is this the Tavistock letter? That's the Tavistock letter. We called it the Tavistock letter from just, just because it had Tavistock House, Dickens' address written at the top. And so that was a night, we thought that would be a nice way to kind of get people looking at the shorthand, at least looking at it. Then what happened, we had a piece of luck. An anonymous donor thought that this was a rather interesting project. She said, okay, why don't you have a prize for it? And I said, well, we're not allowed to. You can't use prize funding money for prizes. And this wonderful anonymous donor, it's like an, a benefactor from Dickens, you know, from mm. Great Expectations, Pip's anonymous benefactor. Indeed. Um, it absolutely is. And said, well, okay, I'll offer £300 for the best attempted transcription. Wow. So I, I was slightly taken aback by that, but I thought, okay, well, we'll ask. And I asked Claire, and what do we think? And Claire said, well, I don't know if we're, we're allowed to. This is, again, a, pro a problem with a research project is it's a new thing. It mm. wasn't in our funding application. What do you do with something that just turns up like this? So we asked the AHRC and they said, no, it's OK. It's coming from outside. You can use it. So we used we had this additional bonus of a 300 pound prize 
uh, for the best possible transcription. So we put all this on our website. We put the, the letter on the website, the prize money, uh, you know, the possible prize money. And we put some, then we ran some workshops and some, um, put some teaching materials online so people could learn the system. So this is workshops for anybody. So any of your puzzlers, decoders out there, right? And we were also involved in in the in festival like the Being Human uh, festival, which sort of offered us a slot on their um, on their program. So we did. We had you know 50, 80 people I think showed up mm -hmm. to us talking about you know the Dickens's shorthand. But it's such a great story. That's right. I think you need a story. That's maybe we'll talk about this later on. But you need yeah. a story. You need a good story to get people to get people interested. I think if you're doing public engagement. Mm. And then what happened? We had another bit of luck, which was that a journalist picked up on on the story, as it were, on on the Claire's because Claire was did a nice Twitter page for us, and and they thought this is a very cool, interesting story. I'm why don't we write it? Why don't I write an article about it? And we thought fantastic. And mm -hmm. the amazing things were that she it turned into a two page spread on the in the Times um, in December, which was before the competition was publicized so that got a lot of interest and so by the time the deadline for the for downloading came out we had about a thousand people downloaded the um competition mm. which was which was what we needed because the shorthand is so hard you need at least a thousand people downloading it because out of those thousand you know not very many are going to be able to uh do some transcription because it's mm. very difficult. From those 1,000, we had about 20, 25 entries, which were very interesting. Mm -hmm. From that, um, we managed to, no, no one did the whole thing, obviously, but some people did bits and pieces here and there. So what we did was from the bits and pieces here and there, we sort of put them together like a jigsaw, and that gave us about 70% of the letter. Mm -hmm. So... So with 70% of the letter, Claire could then go in and we could kind of work out from the in the libraries where this letter occurred. You know, we were able to identify the date, mm -hmm. who it was written to and why it was written. We got practically everything out of it, which was incredibly almost lucky in a way. But it was also thanks to our wonderful transcribers. You know, we got the date because one of the transcribers managed to transcribe the words Ascension Day. Ah. Ascension Day was around the time that the, the, the date, you know, the, the, the time that it was written. You know, that was a brilliant piece of transcription. Mm. Um, and so the, everything that every transcriber did helped to produce the letter. And then after that, of course, that caused a big stir. The fact that the public were able to decipher a letter in Dickens's shorthand that had kind of baffled the experts for 200 years, that created a huge, another kind of story, you know, a bigger story that the public had done it. And so we, then we got another very long article about that in The Guardian, and it was even on the news at 10 in the UK, you know, mm. so that was a big surprise for us. And that got even more people interested in the project. And so since then, you know, we've moved on now to transcribing uh, other bits of shorthand, which are basically, basically the shorthand notes of Arthur Stone, who is one mm -hmm. of Dickens' shorthand pupils. And here we've got another interesting story where 
Dickens seems to be dictating stories to his shorthand pupil. So we're now in the process of working out, you know, what are these stories and are they coming from Dickens and who, where's, what's the source and so on. It's extraordinary. I did read, I think, that the the transcribing um, of the Tavistock letter had then told you a bit more about Dickens as a businessman and um, and the notebooks seem to be illuminating Dickens's creative process. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I mean, it does show Dickens as a, certainly as a businessman, it's, it's about an advertisement. He's rather angry about an advertisement that hasn't been that hasn't been published, that he needs to have published for his the journals that he's editing, called a new journal called All the Year Round. So it's actually quite an important part of his biography, this moment. And it just shows him protecting his interests and how how high he can go. You know, he's writing to the editor of The Times and he gets an instant reply and instant action. So, um, yeah, it shows that he was a powerful man and and was very keen on his own business interests, which which kind of we knew, but this is kind of confirmation of that. Mm-hmm. And the stories are, are, are fascinating because it's Dickens in a room with his pupil mm-hmm. and we've got the pupil's shorthand notes. So the shorthand is, is the pupil writing down either what Dickens is saying or what Dickens is reading, or it could be somebody else, you know, but as we know that Dickens was his teacher, it's, it's likely to be Dickens. So, what is this is Dickens's voice now? You know what we have here isn't isn't Dickens's writing because it's not Dickens's shorthand; it's his pupil's shorthand. But we we are getting Dickens's voice behind his shorthand. So the question is, can we work out if the, what bits are Dickens's voice? What is he saying? Are there in, there are some story? There are two ghost stories in here which are very interesting, and so we're trying to kind of work out whether Dickens's involvement or possible involvement in that. So the it's still going on this and it's it's proved to be a really really fascinating project which is still interesting the public which is where it all started really yes absolutely i think you've touched on some of the things that um that perhaps make a good public engagement um project so um a story for example but but tell me about tell me about public engagement and what it is that makes a good project well, I was new to it, you see, like, like a lot of researchers. Um, we're, this is the new era of public engagement, and Claire was, was, was much more into it than I was, and I didn't know anything about it at the start. So this has all been new to me, and it's been very rewarding. I'm at the end of my career. You know, I wish this had been going on a long time ago um, because it's been the most interesting thing I've ever done, really. I have to say that. Um, so what makes a good project? I think, well, as we were saying, you need a good idea. You've got mm-hmm. to hook people in. Claire calls this the hook. And you need a hook to get people in there. Um, and really, ours had a number of hooks. One of them, obviously, is Dickens. Everyone likes Dickens. He's popular. He's well known. He's got fans. So people are going to be interested in a project about Dickens. Um, another hook we had was I think the idea of puzzles, you know, people like puzzling things. They like codes. Well, some people do, not everybody, but people do crosswords, Sudokus, riddles, you know, that appeals to a lot of people, especially during COVID and the lockdown. There, this, there was a kind of boom in this kind of thing. So we were quite lucky with that, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had a genuine mystery, I think, that, that needed solving. Um, and another little hook was the prize money. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that people were doing it for the money because there really wasn't very much money there, but 
Um, it certainly got the media interested. So I think at the heart, the project kind of worked because the public are doing the work, really. In other words, the hook is getting people in and then the public is doing the work. It's not us doing the work. We're, Claire and I, our job was really to facilitate them doing the work. Mm. So the letter was downloaded about a thousand times by people from all over the world, as I understand it. How did you go about managing and collating the responses that you got? Well, what we did was that everything arrived by email, which is good. Um, and then we uh, downloaded each uh, each transcription and then sort of transcribed. I had a sort of master transcription, which in which I'd wrote down every single thing that every single person had transcribed. You know, we identified 25 who could who had something there mm -hmm. that was usable and we thought was correct. And then we just did sort of cross comparison. Um, you can never really be sure with shorthand because we don't have a clean copy. So you mm -hmm. can never be sure, but it was a question of probability. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really how we did it. And we did a kind of jigsaw reading, what we call jigsaw reading, which was putting the pieces together. And then we had a transcription that we could work with and try and... Um, and then we sent, of course, we sent it back. And um, people could say whether they agreed or not and so on. So that was another really important thing about the engagement with the public is that we gave them a lot of feedback and we gave mm -hmm. it personally to them. In other words, we were emailing them individually and then we had a sort of collective dialogue on the website. So the website would show the transcription and we had blogs explaining what we thought. Mm -hmm. And then we had individual feedback. So people felt, I think this was very important for the project that people felt they were individually involved. That's mm. quite a lot of work, okay? Mm. Um, and so it, we, it's, it's important to realise that a public engagement project really does need individual work. You're not just putting up a website. You really have to try and engage with person, people on an individual level. They really appreciate that. And it's a bit, for us, it was a bit like marking homework, you know? Every month we did a, a monthly challenge. People send in their solutions. We mark it and give it back regularly. And I think that's another really important thing. It's not just the personal feedback. It has to be kind of regular. You've got to keep people not on the hook, really, but it's kind of like that. If you if you keep things going regularly with interesting material, I suppose a bit like doing a podcast. Yes. You've got to regularly do stuff that's interesting to keep people interested. Yes. Well, I was going to ask you if you had like a newsletter or... Yeah, that's a very good question. We were thinking of having a newsletter, but we found that the way to do it was to do a monthly challenge mm -hmm. with shorthand. So what we ended up doing is giving two pages of the shorthand a month for people to transcribe, giving them a bit of background saying, you know, this is this is the back like it or even stuff shorthand that had been written by Dickens, which had been partially transcribed. So we had a bit of background saying, look, this is partially transcribed. Can you finish it off? Um, so there, everyone, the public got the sense of a challenge, mm -hmm. I think. And they also, at the end of the month, got a tangible result. In other words, they had their feedback on theirs. They could see what other people had done. So they could say, oh, yes, of course, that's right. I should have known that. And, you know, they it's like doing a crossword puzzle. You You want the result of the puzzle the next day so you can see where you went wrong and you can improve. 
they people need an intrinsic motivation to do something. And I think with a challenge and a result, I think that was quite helpful for getting mm. for, for keeping the project moving. Because we still we're still going after you know two or three years, we're still doing monthly or monthly challenges. We try and keep it up. Have you been putting together something like a Dickens Rosetta Stone? Is this part of the part of the decoding as well that's maybe going to speed things up? perhaps even with the use of AI? That's another really good question. What I'm trying to do at the moment with the help of our um, decoders is to put together a glossary, which is the, the Rosetta Stone, as it were, yes. every single symbol that Dickens has written and with its transcription so that in future people will be able to look at it and say, ah, oh, this is that, and so that, so that it can be built upon. Mm. And that's, I hope, a resource that will be used in the future Mm-hmm. And yes, AI is a project. Um, we've we have um, a team of computer scientists at the University of Leicester, working with Claire on um, trying to train uh, train the in simple words train the computer to read Dickens's shorthand. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is proving pretty difficult. And at the moment. Um, the humans are ahead of the curve, as it were. We can transcribe much quicker because the computer is running into the problems, the same problems that we have. And as you look at a symbol and you don't know how to read it because it can be read in three or four different ways. Mm-hmm. And also we've got two other very interesting possibilities which have come up, which is that a um, an art historian wrote to us mm. say that he has some shorthand written in the Gurney system, which is the same system Dickens uses, by a, an artist in the 18th century, that's 19th century, that he's working on. And he writes, this artist, under his drawings, writes bits of shorthand to describe his, or writes comments on his own shorthand to describe it. Mm. And he is trying to decode it, but he's asked us to help us with help him with that. There are also law reports in the 19th century, law reports written in shorthand that you know, in Gurney Short that haven't been transcribed. So we may be one day helping with that as well. So Mm. we've got a team of transcribers that can actually help with research now. And I kind of feel that, you know, the whole world of shorthand, of undeciphered shorthand is there to be discovered. Well, on that optimistic note, I could talk about Dickens, about shorthand, about outreach for hours. Thank you so much for your time um, today. This has been such an interesting discussion. Thank you, Elise. It's been great fun doing it. So even though this won a THE Award for Research Project of the Year, Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, this is, again, another great example of public engagement, public scholarship, and reaching out to the public to help come to these research conclusions or to help the public do the research. I love the Dickens decoders um, that are out there in the world helping them um, decipher what his shorthand was saying. I know, it's a really fantastic story, as Hugo and I talked about. There was a couple of threads running through both of the interviews, I thought. One was the public engagement, which is obviously key to both Zoe and the Dickens Code. But also the concept uh, and the importance of interdisciplinarity. So um, the Dickens Code used experts from linguistics, from informatics, from public engagement and then there's, and then we see also the benefits of that research reaching far beyond 
just Dickens as a, as a writer, so far beyond literature. Yeah, and I also think it just shows that public engagement can go beyond citizen science. I think the Zoe app is kind of a classic example of, of health science or, or other scientific projects that we've seen where people can really get involved and track their experience of something. But this Dickens project was very much people engaging in the literature with one of the world's most famous authors, probably many people's favorite authors. Um, so it was, a, it was a great example of how the humanities can also engage in that public research. Um, and I love that Hugo gives almost a little masterclass in public engagement, talking about how to find the hook and how to identify projects that are good to engage the public in. I was also quite fascinated and inspired by what he was talking about in terms of ongoing engagement. So how to hook the public in the first place, but also to keep them on board. So all the different strategies that he and Claire had used to keep people coming back and to keep people interested and continuing that conversation, continuing that relationship. I thought that was, um, that was a really interesting part of the way that that project works. Hmm. And you can really see that the success comes from the researchers just enjoying this. Hugo said it's been the most interesting thing he's ever done after a long career of academic research. So you can tell that they, they really enjoyed the projects themselves. Exactly, exactly. And we, um, we actually have the Dickens Museum just around the corner from the office. So it's inspired me to go and visit. We'll have a campus field trip. Uh, Eliza, thank you so much for speaking to our awards, our past awards winners for this episode. And thanks to Hugo and Tanya for giving us their time. Thanks, Sarah. I really enjoyed this one. We'll see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.